listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guest is Ken Manister. A respected scholar, Ken joined the faculty at the Santa Clara University School of Law in 1972, where he is now a professor emeritus. He's also senior counsel in the environmental practice, Oldbury Winthrop Daw Pittman. Earlier in his career, he worked with the Chicago attorney and later Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens on an investigation into corruption in the Illinois Supreme Court. We'll be discussing that fascinating case and his new book, Pro Bono Practice and Legal Ethics. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Ken. Thanks for joining us on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be with you. How are things in California? Lovely. Quite lovely. Just hoping they won't stay lovely too long because we need rain. But today's great. That's great. And good luck with the rain. I want to set the stage for our listeners by explaining how we connected with you. In mid-July, we received an email, totally out of the blue, from from the Carolina Academic Press asking if we wanted a copy of a new book called Pro Bono Practice and Legal Ethics. And of course we did. We're all about pro bono, and we do a lot of work on ethical issues that arise in pro bono practice. We publish a handbook about ethical issues in pro bono that's available on our website at our resource clearinghouse. We produce programs, we speak. So this was clearly um, a topic that's in our wheelhouse. And we enthusiastically got a copy or a link because it was an ebook. And we studied it, and we wanted to help spread the word about this terrific new resource. So we got back in touch with the publisher and asked if any of the authors would be interested in being a guest on our program, which seemed like a vibrant, current, and engaging way to get the word out beyond a traditional book review, let's say. Um, And so, Ken, you must have been the lucky one that day, or maybe you drew, drew the short straw, depending on how you look at it. But, but here we are, and we were happy to, to, to meet you and get to know you. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. My, <clears throat> excuse me, my two all co-authors, uh, each is, is in uh, sort of a, 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 a transition. Um, uh, one uh, is moving back uh, to the East Coast. The other is moving to Southern California. So, um, so I was uh, the most available, and uh, I'm happy to happy to see if I can shed some light on on what we've done. That's great. Well, we'll talk about your co-authors in a little bit. Um, we want to give them full credit and and full acknowledgement for for their efforts. But before we get too far down the road, could you tell us about yourself and your background? Sure, happy to do so. Uh, I. Uh, have been uh, for many years a uh, law professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. Uh, last month, I uh, retired from that uh, position, so I'm now Professor Emeritus at Santa Clara. Uh, my main field uh, has long been environmental law, and uh, before I came to teaching, I was an assistant attorney general in Illinois where I um, worked in the early development of the Illinois Attorney General's environmental um, uh, enforcement uh, program. So starting with that, way back when, in 1970, uh, environmental law has really been my my main field. Along the way, 
for a couple of years. I I, uh, I was on leave of, from teaching for a year and worked with the Natural Resources Defense Council uh, for a year, and then continued in, in, in a, on a part-time basis with NRDC. Um, and uh, during my years at Santa Clara, I also served for quite a while, for about 17 years, on the adjudicatory board of the Regional Air District uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which, in case your listeners are not familiar with it, uh, Santa Clara is in the San Francisco Bay Area. Many people did not know that for a long time, but the San Francisco 49ers, now being based in Santa Clara, uh, have solved that problem. Um, I also uh, have been, since I left the uh, the Air Board, uh, I have been of counsel to the environmental group at the Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw-Pittman uh, law firm in the San Francisco office, uh, working on an array of uh, an array of environmental uh, matters for our clients. Um, so the, the, I think that's the, the broad strokes of uh, what uh, what I've been about. Yeah, that's really helpful. And that, that was another connection for us since Pillsbury is a signatory to our law firm pro bono challenge. Um, I don't think this is a spoiler. And you, you mentioned sort of the Illinois um, connection in your past. But Justice Stevens plays a starring role in pro bono practice and legal ethics. And I wanted to explore the why and how of that by turning back the clock and learning about your involvement with him and your subsequent projects documenting his rise. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, I love talking about that um, for a few reasons. One is it's a very exciting and really very uh, lucky part of my career. And the other is because... Uh, as a result of uh, that episode, I've, I've been really blessed to have a, a friendship with Justice Stevens uh, since before he was uh, on the bench uh, anywhere. Uh, what this goes back to is um, after uh, law school and uh, uh, clerkship, some other things, uh, I was a young associate at the firm that is now Sidley Austin uh, in Chicago, which I suspect is also part of your program. And uh, while there, one day I was uh, asked if I wanted to work uh, on a high-profile project, uh, something that was getting a lot of attention in the newspapers in Chicago uh, that summer. This was the summer of 1969, and uh, I had no idea what I was being asked to volunteer for. And um, it was, uh, I'm going to say candidly, one of those situations which, as a young associate, I was asked to volunteer, but I'm not sure volunteer was really the apt word there. Uh, it was expected I would say yes, and I did. Uh, and it turned into one of the great, uh, great professional experiences of my life. What it was was a, an investigation, something we would now call an independent counsel investigation of alleged bribery on the Illinois Supreme Court. <clears throat> that is to say, <clears throat> excuse me, bribery by a very prominent uh, litigant of uh, the Chief Justice and another Justice of the State Supreme Court. Uh, and it related to a criminal case that uh, was pending against this uh, very politically powerful uh, individual. Uh, the investigation of these bribery allegations uh, ended up being conducted in a most unusual way uh, for reasons that uh, are, are 
too lengthy to explain right here right now, but uh, essentially it became an investigation by leaders of the bar into the Illinois Supreme Court and these two justices in particular. And in the organized bar in in pulling together this investigation on very short notice with a very short uh, time period allowed for it needed help. And the uh, main help it needed was a sort of a chief lawyer, a chief counsel to conduct the investigation. And for reasons that, again, uh, warrant rather extensive explanation, the lawyer who was tapped for this position was a Chicago uh, antitrust lawyer in a small firm by the name of John Paul Stevens. John Stevens needed some assistance, and the bar associations uh, went around tapping young lawyers from some of the firms in the area, and the firm I was with, again now Sidley, um, was one that was asked to contribute a young lawyer, and I was contributed. I was volunteered into it, you might say. And I had the extraordinary experience of working pretty much around the clock with John Stevens and uh, a handful of other uh, mostly young lawyers on this investigation. Uh, and it was it was quite a, an historic event in uh, the uh, long tortured history of Illinois corruption uh, scandals. And in this case, a very successful, very brief uh, investigation of the alleged bribery in the state Supreme Court. Flash fast forward to about 1992, uh, Justice Stevens was giving a speech to the American Bar Association at its pro bono awards luncheon, uh, and I was, happened to be there. And he was speaking about pro bono cases he had worked on as a young lawyer, and he spoke about two of those. And then at the end of his talk, he spoke about this 1969 investigation. And he said, and this is almost a verbatim quote, had I not worked on that pro bono matter, I would not occupy the position I occupy today. Um, and at that moment, I, again, being very privileged to be in the audience for the, his, this speech uh, at the pro bono awards luncheon, it occurred to me, uh, this someone should tell this story. Someone should write up what he did. Uh, because, as he acknowledged then, and has been widely acknowledged, it was that work, that pro bono work of his, that led to him becoming uh, first a Seventh Circuit judge, and then from there becoming a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Uh, and at, on that occasion, when I realized someone should tell the story, I realized I was probably being a law professor and having been intimately involved in the case, uh, I was probably uniquely positioned to tell the story. And I proposed to John Stevens that we write it together as an article. He agreed, and we started working on it, and he quickly realized two things. One was that this story was going to make him look very good, and he's a very modest person. So he felt a little awkward about telling this story about his own uh, very successful effort. And he also uh, realized what, of course, was obvious to everyone. He had a lot of other things to do, being a member of the Supreme Court. So it turned into a book uh, that I wrote uh, with a uh, uh, forward to the book by Justice Stevens. 
and it uh, took quite a few years, but uh, the book did come out in uh, in 2001 uh, called Illinois Justice, the Scandal of 1969 and the Rise of John Paul Stevens. And um, if, if you'd like, I can explain how we got from that to this, this pro bono practice and legal ethics book. Yeah, let's do that. Um, and I will say Justice Stevens still repeats that remark. So um, people still today, if they're at an event or a ceremony or the right venue, that had I not participated in that pro bono matter, I would not occupy the position I occupy today, still comes out of his lips and just jumps off his tongue. So let's connect the dots a little. How do we get from there to here? Well, (laughs) when I was writing the book, um, there were two people who were extraordinarily, extraordinarily enthusiastic about having this story revisited and told. Uh, I was one, and Justice Stevens was the other. He just he this this it was a very exciting event for him, even not knowing what it was going to do to his career, which was to catalyze his his ascension uh, to the federal judiciary. But as I was writing it and expressing my enthusiasm and trying to pull together the history of it, uh, and I told friends and colleagues about it, people were saying, wow, this is a very exciting story. This should be a movie. You should make a film out of this thing. I thought, okay, that's an interesting idea. And it sort of became a hobby for me to see if I could put this somehow into uh, the context of a film. It took many years, but it worked. And last year, in 2015, we completed uh, a documentary film that was premiered on the uh, PBS station in Chicago just about a year ago, uh, last September. And earlier this year was broadcast between April and July, and I think there's still some broadcasts going on, was broadcast... Uh, on something like 230 PBS stations across the country. Uh, it, it, the, the documentary is called Unexpected Justice, The Rise of John Paul Stevens. And the, the connection between that film and actually between the Illinois Justice book, that film, and this pro bono practice in legal ethics book is this. In trying to get the film made, I had to do a bunch of fundraising. And in the course of that fundraising, which, and happily the film was mostly funded by uh, Chicago law firms and former clerks to Justice Stevens. Uh, in pursuing funding for the this film project, I had a conversation at one point with uh, folks from LexisNexis, uh, which is the publisher of a couple other books I've written, and a chap who was then the head of law school publishing for LexisNexis, um, I told him about the, the Illinois Justice story, and he said, well, maybe uh, LexisNexis could contribute some money uh, to the making of the film. He looked into that and said, well, we can't really make a donation, but if you come up with a project, a book project, um, based on that story, maybe maybe LexisNexis could put some development money into it. And he said, you know, maybe there's an ethics aspect to uh, the 
uh, Illinois justice story that could be transformed into some teaching materials related to legal ethics. Well, there's a lot of legal ethics issues coming out of that Illinois justice story in, in many levels, judicial ethics as well. Uh, and I thought about it, and quickly it was quickly evident to me that the link between this story and legal ethics uh, was one of at least one of the main links was with pro bono work because this was pro bono work. Uh, John Stevens was not compensated at all for his work leading the investigation of the Illinois Supreme Court bribery scandal. Uh, other lawyers involved in it, uh, as I can explain a little later, uh, who were solo practitioners, um, were getting no compensation for it. And of course, those of us who were young associates in law firms still continued to draw our salaries, um, but there was, of course, nothing more um, than that. So the link between this story, legal ethics, and pro bono work seemed pretty evident uh, to me. Well, as you may know, uh, LexisNexis's law book uh, division uh, earlier this year uh, was um, transferred, sold, I assume, to Carolina Academic Press. And the project that had sprung out of that conversation in which we were looking for money for the film uh, became this this book. So thank you for sharing. It is a fascinating origin story, for yeah, sure. Maybe it's a little longer than, than your listeners might be interested in, but it's, it's, it's a somewhat circuitous uh, route, I guess. And, and I guess the one other ingredient I should add is that in making the film, we had, that is the filmmakers, some wonderful documentary filmmakers in Chicago named Siskel Jacobs Productions, um, and, 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 and another fellow who worked with me on this even before we got Siskel Jacobs involved. We did about three hours of interviews, of filmed interviews with Justice Stevens about this, about the story. Um, what was suggested from the LexisNexis chap was that maybe we would have material, film material that had not been used in the film, which is a 30-minute documentary, uh, that might be helpful in uh, illuminating ethical issues related to this pro bono work. Uh, bottom line is there's a, there's, there's a fair number of clips of films of Justice Stevens talking about aspects of this pro bono case that pertain to the subject of our book. And in the ebook, those will be right there. And in the print copy of the book, there are uh, URLs um, for a variety, I think probably somewhere around 20 different clips of Justice Stevens uh, talking about the issues that we address in the book as they relate to that experience he had with that case. It, it is a very user-friendly tool. It, it's a great bonus feature if you, if you weren't expecting it and didn't know that you were getting that material. And it really brings the drama and historical context for some of the issues um, to, to light in a, in a very original and, and very unique way. Um, oh, wonderful. I mean, if I may add one thing, by the way, um, you, you mentioned the, the Pillsbury Winthrop firm with which uh, I'm associated now as senior counsel. Um, <laughs> uh, Pillsbury represented the film project Pro Bono. 
So it's like circle of life, right? It all comes together. <laughs> it's Something fantastic. of that sort. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So you worked with two co-authors on pro bono practice and legal ethics. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you roped them in, who they are, <laughs> where they are now, and, and how did you collaborate? Sort of how did you work together? Who did what? What was the process? Yeah, the um, original, my my initial thought in pulling this together was I needed uh, an expert on legal ethics, uh, and fortunately, uh, Alan Shefflin, who uh, uh, was a member of the law faculty here at Santa Clara for many years as well, he retired a couple of years ago, uh, Alan is an expert uh, in, in, in legal ethics. And so I asked him if he would be interested in working on this with me, and he uh, he agreed uh, to do so. Uh, and Alan has written extensively on professional responsibility issues, has taught in the in the field for a long time. Uh, as I say, Alan retired from uh, teaching here at Santa Clara a couple of years ago, uh, and just uh, a month or so ago, uh, after many years living in California, uh, he and his wife moved back. Uh, to uh, the uh, New York, New Jersey uh, area, which is uh, where he originally is is from. Uh, the other co-author is uh, Viva Harris. Viva is a graduate of uh, the law school here at Santa Clara. Uh, was <laughs> is quite a remarkable um, person, having been number one in her class all three years of law school uh, and practiced for a while and uh, and. Uh, now, uh, after having begun to raise a family, uh, she's decided that she wanted to. She wants to get into law teaching. She did some teaching with us here in Santa Clara in recent years, uh, and is an excellent uh, teacher. Um, but is really interested in in, uh, in in making a career as a law professor, um, and so she was interested in this project. Uh, began to help us a, a little bit with some research on it, and then I realized that with her her intelligence and her interests in this point, uh, uh, I realized she she would make a marvelous co-author on it, and so she uh, she invited us in. Uh, Viva Harris has just begun a doctoral program in political science at UCLA, um, as, as apparently now. Um, in, in terms of her interests uh, and in terms of what the law professor uh, hiring is about now, uh, a PhD is uh, is a real plus. Um, it, it, I think it could become fairly evident uh, in terms of the organization of the book, um, and, and perhaps I can, I, if, if it's helpful, um, I can sort of explain the structure of the book as I indicate how we sort of divided the, the labor. Yeah, that would be great. For for people to get a slightly deeper understanding of, of the nature of the book, the authors very helpfully and clearly write that the goal of the book is to explore the history, obligations, challenges, and rewards of pro bono legal practice. So maybe now you could tell us a little bit about the topics that are covered and then what your process was. The uh, maybe just a quick overview with the book. It's it's not very long, and in fact, that was one of our objectives uh, was to make sure it was not very long because our hope is that it will be um, used in courses in law school on legal ethics, uh, that it will be used in uh, pro bono uh, programs 
and clinical work uh, in law schools, and also that it will be useful for lawyers in firms or uh, nonprofit organizations uh, or corporation uh, corporate uh, law offices in which folks are doing pro bono work. That it will be essentially a, a training aid, and for that reason, we didn't want to make it the you know standard uh, you know multi hundred page casebook format. Um, it's 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 much shorter. Than that, it's about 140, 150 pages. Of the seven chapters, uh, let me just sort of run through them. Um, the, the introduction is uh, actually sort of sets up the the broadest issue, I think, um, in in the book, which is sort of why do pro bono work? What is the nature of the individual and the profession's uh, responsibility? To 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 do uh, to do pro bono work uh, for for disadvantaged individuals for good causes of, of a tremendous variety. Um, so we explore that through some sort of background um, statements about the profession's responsibility, and then we get into the story of uh, Justice Stevens and the pro bono matter that he. Um, that 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 I've just mentioned uh, in this 1969 investigation, uh, we acknowledge <laughs> that although there are many personal and professional benefits that people can get from doing pro bono work, uh, you don't want to go into it thinking, yes, if I work on this good cause, I'm going to make it to the Supreme Court. That just doesn't happen very often. In fact, I don't know of any other instance in which um, one case has. Played uh, again. I'll use the word the role, such a role of a catalyst in transforming uh, an, an individual lawyer's um, career uh, on the path to the Supreme Court. But we explore the responsibility uh, question in, in a broad sense in in this introductory chapter and address it um, in the context of what Justice Stevens uh, did um, when he was lawyer Stevens then. Uh, and and I because that story relates to what I have been involved with. I, I guess you could say I took the lead on on that introductory uh, chapter. Uh, the second chapter uh, is is really historical, and um, the intention is to let the reader, particularly the young lawyer, understand how we got to where we are with the profession's interest in and. A growing commitment to to pro bono work by lawyers. Um, Alan Shefflin uh, came up with the creative title for this chapter of "From No Bono to Pro Bono," uh, and uh, he talks a lot about the the history, the obstacles, the resistance, um, and uh, over over many years to uh, a, a lot of um, pro bono work. Uh, and then he talks a lot with great emphasis on the sort of political agitation by the lawyers as well as many others uh, in the 1960s and 70s and the development of, of public interest practice in, in various forms and law school clinics and, of course, government-supported um, uh, legal services. So that's kind of it, – it, it's both an historical overview and we hope uh, an inspiring uh, overview of how we got to where we are, so people realize they're if they're if they're getting into this work, if they're getting into the profession, and including 
uh, pro bono uh, commitments that they're they're really following um, on a path that was set by some pretty pretty courageous men and women uh, in, in in earlier years. The, the the third chapter called Defining and Fostering Pro Bono gets into some great stuff. And again, Alan Shefflin brought uh, a lot of his uh, archives and thinking uh, to bear on this. Is What do we mean by pro bono work? What constitutes pro bono work? Uh, and so we have a series of, of sections uh, related to the issue of money. Um, does, does it really matter if you're going to get any money out of the work you do in one way or another? Um, is it only work for which there's no possibility of compensation? Uh, should motive uh, matter as to why one does this work? Um, and then we get into discussion of the range of clients and so forth. Because um, there, there is such, a, as I'm sure you well know and your listeners know, there's such a range of potential clients for whom pro bono work is done uh, and, 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 and should be done. Um, and then we get to a very uh, hot topic, which is when should it begin? Uh, and in terms of during law school, before law school, do we expect some proof of sort of community service uh, in the admission process? In terms of admission to the bar, are there pro bono requirements? Uh, again, in terms of remaining uh, active in the bar, are there pro bono, mandatory pro bono requirements? So we do touch on, on, on those kinds of things. What other sort of topics and material, just, you know, broadly speaking, do you right. guys cover? And I should indicate, I mean, yeah. we, don't, we, we don't presume, my co-authors and I don't presume to have answers or prescriptions <laughs> For uh, for all of these things, um, I guess perhaps because the the three of us are um, more law teachers, uh, we're, we 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 pride ourselves on being able to ask questions. Well, I, it would also be outdated the minute you published it because the landscape changes about every twenty minutes. So. Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> Having worked in environmental law, I'm used to that. Um, that 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 changes yep. all the time. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, you know, we try to avoid answering things. That's what law teachers do. We all know that. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I just uh, quickly, we go into to sort of court appointment, to some of the specific issues related to uh, ethical responsibilities related to court appointments, either with compensation or without. Criminal cases, of course, uh, are the sort of most obvious area in which court appointment is 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 quite well accepted in civil cases gets a little more interesting so we 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 touch on those kinds of issues and how the ABA model rules of professional conduct affect um, uh, impact on court appointments um, I think one of the and, and again that was something Alan Shefflin really took the lead on um, the 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 next chapter, which I, I personally think is, is one of the one of the most interesting, is called benefits and challenges. And uh, Viva Harris took the lead on this in exploring the, the the benefits of for the individual lawyer of undertaking pro bono work um, in terms of career satisfaction, in terms of gaining experience, uh, and then the practical challenges, um, financial issues, work life balance, and time management issues. Um, and uh, really looking at the at the pros and cons, the the sort of happy uh, happy upside of of doing this work, and some of the very practical burdens and stresses that uh, that can arise. And then lastly, we get uh, in terms of the major substantive chapters, chapter six 
gets into the distinctive ethical issues, and we, we make the point a couple of times that obviously any aspect of the rules of professional conduct that are apply to a lawyer in practice ordinarily equally well apply to pro bono work. Uh, we just try to identify some, not all, of the ethical issues that are distinctive, uh, have distinctive aspects in the pro bono context. Um, uh, competence is, is the first one, and, and I, I must say that that was one of the issues that in the um, in the clips, the film clips of, of Justice Stevens talking about the 1969 case, that um, it really comes up because he, he, he had not he had not ever really done anything like what he was being asked to do in in this investigation. Um, he had he had some relevant experience, and he was a he was a very experienced trial lawyer, very good at fact finding, but. As he acknowledges in some of the uh, film clips, this was this was kind of new uh, to him. But uh, ad- addressing an issue I, I spoke about at, at the at the outset, in terms of what our first chapter talks about, in terms of the professor's responsibility, one of the most remarkable things about this that case and Justice Stevens uh, uh, undertaking it was his how ready he was when asked to perform this public service, again, without compensation, um, he said, yeah, that's the kind of thing a lawyer should do. And he really didn't have any doubt about that. And I think it's one of the most inspiring parts of, of, of his, uh, his, his story. I should mention at that time, he was a partner in a very small firm that he and, and two other gentlemen uh, had created as, as young lawyers. So it's not like he was uh, you know, floating on the cushion of uh, being part of a very large firm with lots of resources to support him. This, this, this was, was, uh, was tricky and somewhat dangerous business for him uh, in, in terms of the, the viability of his practice uh, and his obligations to his partners and the burdens that his office staff would bear and, and so forth. And of course, the other issue, just while I'm, I'm speaking of that, is what would be the impact on his practice and his reputation and his clients. Uh, if this thing didn't go well, here you have a lawyer who was facing off against two of the most powerful uh, judges in the in the state, the Chief Justice and another former Chief Justice of the state Supreme Court. Um, so it, it, alongside the issue of am I really competent to undertake this kind of task, is the issue of of the price tags um, that might come with it in terms of impact on reputation and future practice. Uh, just uh, as the other distinctive ethical issues, issues of multicultural lawyering, so often in pro bono work, uh, the client and the lawyer are, are really bringing very different um, backgrounds, uh, personal uh, and contextual backgrounds uh, to their interaction, issues of communication, um, and then, of course, a variety of conflict of interest uh, issues that can come up that are perhaps not all that different from what lawyers uh, ordinarily uh, can face, but uh, there, there are a few distinctive aspects we, uh, we get into. And then finally, we have a summary chapter looking ahead. Uh, one question we ask is, what if pro bono uh, commitments by the profession really aren't enough to meet society's needs? What are, what are some other uh, options. So overall, our, our hope is um, 
is, is not just to, as you quoted, explore the history and obligations, but to to inspire and to assist uh, law students and lawyers to uh, to to meet the profession's uh, duty uh, to to work for all people in our society who who are in need. Well, I think you've succeeded, and as a reader, regardless of your level of experience, whether you are a student, whether you are an experienced practitioner, it's incredibly accessible, the material is incredibly readable, and it is a significant contribution, so we're, we're very grateful. Um, we'll make links available, but could you tell us where people can find the book if they're interested in learning more? Yes, I've, at first I'm, I'm very pleased that you you like what you've read, and uh, we certainly hope it'll it'll be be helpful to 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 you to to the Pro Bono Institute and to uh, to to your your listeners. The the book is published by Carolina Academic Press. Uh, I checked again this morning; it is available through Carolina Academic Press's website. Uh, it is also uh, looks like available. For purchase on Amazon and on uh, BarnesandNoble.com, so those are uh, the three main areas I'm aware of. I believe there's also a Kindle edition on Amazon, and also at a site called Red Shelf. Red Shelf, I believe, is where you can get the electronic version. And at the very least, put pro bono practice and legal ethics in your search engine, and it'll pop right up. Well, Ken, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us, and good luck with the book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to Ken for joining us today. To learn more about us and our work, visit our website, probonoinst.org. There, you'll also be able to find more information about Ken's book, Pro Bono Practice and Legal Ethics, which was published this summer by the Carolina Academic Press. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. We'd be very grateful if you could subscribe, rate, and review the Pro Bono Happy Hour on iTunes. It's quick and easy to do. If I figured it out, I'm sure you can too. We'd love to hear from you, and your honest feedback would make it easier for other listeners to find the program, expanding the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you.